of God, that you may be able to stay, be, excuse me, that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel and peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Thank you, Sandy. Appreciate that very much. Appreciate Sandy's personality, too. She's always kind of like life in the room. And we need that, especially with guys like me in the room. You need somebody else with some life in it. How's it going today? You can all answer. It's fine. All right. Unless it's bad, then don't answer. Well, some, I guess, probably 2,700 years ago, it was over 2,500 years ago, in the history of Israel, there was a prophet named Elisha, and he was, he carried the mantle, if you will, from another great prophet called Elijah. He was his apprentice, and Elijah was his mentor, and Elijah had, of course, seen the Lord do some incredible things, and so, uh, not skipping a beat, Elisha, the one, the prophet that would follow in his footsteps, had seen the Lord work in incredible, profound, and miraculous ways. And recorded for us in Second Kings, and specifically in chapter 6, after Elisha had seen the Lord done some amazing things and some really incredible things, there was one that was with him that needed to be convinced of the Lord's power, and so Elisha prayed that he would see the Lord's power as he had. As I said, Elisha was used to God showing up. He was used to God doing his thing, as we would say today. And at one point, again, in the history of Israel, Syria was was moving in on Israel, was looking to attack, and the king of Syria was was um, mapping out and staging his attack and saying, okay, we're going to set up an encampment over here, and we're going to come around this way. And it seemed like with every attempt, Israel was a step ahead. Well, Elijah, as I said, had seen the hand of God move, and his fame was was made known. And so when the king of Syria was frustrated saying, how in the world is it that Israel knows everything we're about to do? His men said to him, it's because they have the prophet Elisha. He is somehow kind of like downloading the information you're giving in these strategy sessions and he's sharing it with his people. He's leaking it out to them. Elisha wasn't in those strategy sessions, but again, voice of the Lord speaking to him saying, tell the people this, this is where your enemy is advancing. So with every move, they were ahead of it. The king of Syria had enough. He said, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get rid of this prophet. We're going to encircle him and take him out. 
Now, ironically, Elisha had known every move this king was going to make, but somehow, coincidentally, he didn't know the move to come and capture him. He did. I'm just saying this sarcastically. So the people of the army of Syria come to encamp around him and, and, and surround uh, him and his servant, his apprentice, who is saying to Elijah, saying, okay, well, we had a good run. It's over now. What do we do now? There was no way out of this. Elijah just prays a simple prayer and says, Lord, show him what I see. Show him that those that are for us are more than those who are against us. And if you know the story of 2 Kings 6, immediately this apprentice's eyes were opened and he could see that the forces of the Lord's army, the heavenly angels themselves, were in far greater number than those that were from Syria to come to take Elisha captive. The Lord, and so Elisha has a simple follow-up prayer and says, Lord, strike him with blindness. Now they're all going, where are we? What do we do? He says, it's, it's this way. Follow the sound of my voice. And he leads them into captivity, into Israel's hands. And then he says to the Israelites, he says, rather than slaughtering them or taking them captive, let's show them mercy. Let's respond to show them grace. They've seen the hand and the power of the Lord move. So let's call it a day. God has had his, had his day. He's had his moment. He's shown his, his strength. And that's what happens. But I, I want to take us back to that tiny little moment that happens. Why, why would this captivity happen? For so many reasons, probably, but certainly for the reason that this young apprentice or servant of Elisha's would have his eyes open to see that there is a world that he has never encountered. There is a realm in which he's never really acknowledged or walked in wittingly. This was old hat to Elisha. He knew the forces of the Lord. He knew the Lord's mighty hand and strength. My contention for us this morning in going through this portion of the scriptures is in most circumstances, we are that servant of Elisha. We are the ones who constantly need our eyes open to all that the Lord can and does do, myself included. And so I'm praying that the words of Paul that we just heard read to us are the kind of words that challenge us to have our eyes open to the world in which we really operate in. There are two worlds. There are the seen and the unseen worlds. And the outcomes of our lives, whether they are good or indifferent or bad or any of those kinds of things, the outcomes of our lives are determined by which of these two worlds we choose to operate in. If you choose to only live for the world that you can see and touch and smell and have all your senses engaged in, then that is a temporary existence, one that will end uh, apart and away from the Lord himself. The, the one that is unseen is a completely different world to us. It's not familiar to us. And so we have a temptation to kind of ignore that that one exists. I don't really want to think about that. It's, it's spooky or it's hard to get my head around or I don't really want to see or experience anything that's outside of my norm. It's a temptation for us to only live in the scene. The things that are familiar to me, even if I'm not excited about them, even if they hurt me, even if they're, they're, they're pain in my life, at least it's something I know and I'm used to. You ask me to go into territory of things that I don't understand, things I've never tried before, I'm hesitant. I, I like the world that I know. I like the one that has proven itself to me over and over again. I also, in my flesh, like the world that I can feel, the one that gives me immediate feedback as to how it's treating me. 
whether or not I'm getting out of this life the things that I want or whether or not it's kicking me in the teeth, at least I know there's no mystery to it. I feel it immediately. And then there's something about the desire of wanting to control the circumstances of my life and and comprehend what's happening, that I like the finiteness of life as well. I know when birth starts and I know what death looks like because I'm able to watch them on both ends of that uh, spectrum. And so there's something about that that even though I can't wrap it all up, I can comprehend portions of it. So there's a part of me that is just tempted to live in that which I can see, that which I can touch and be satisfied with that. The problem that we all have though, is that there's this lurking reality of the unseen that shows up every so often. It trips us up. It it, it uh, presents a mystery or presents a thing that we kind of go, I don't really understand everything, do I? I don't see it all. As we've been studying Ephesians together, as you've heard, we've found ourselves here in chapter 6, which Ephesians is a, a New Testament letter. It's going to be towards the end of your Bible. If you brought a Bible and you can see how few pages I have towards the back, you'll be looking for all the um, S-I-A-N or S-I-O-N kind of words as you're getting there. And Ephesians is this tiny little book of six chapters that the Apostle Paul had written to a specific people, the church that was coming alive and was growing specifically in Ephesus, but also in the region as other churches, no doubt, would get a hold of this letter. And the interesting thing about Ephesians or the church in Ephesus is that it's spoken of in the uh, in the Revelation letter as well, John's revelation of all the things that would happen in the future, and it's not spoken of glowingly. Paul is giving them a warning in this moment, pay attention to these things, step up to the plate in these ways and in this area, only for us to know that it didn't last for them. They took their eyes off the ball. The, the, the way that we've looked at this letter has been broken so far. It's been broken up so far into two sections. We've heard all about our resources in Christ. Paul went through those first three chapters of saying, you have this in Jesus. And because of his death, burial and resurrection, his beating, uh, his beating, uh, conquering sin and beating death, you have all of these things. So we section that as the wealth of our resources. And then he gets practical for us from chapters 4, 5, and 6. And he says that this is how you actually walk in those ways. This is how you conduct yourself. You live this faith out in these ways. So, so far, the letter has been favorable, convicting at times. We see where we fall short in certain ways. But for the most part, we can listen to these things. The first three chapters, tons of good stuff that we have. And we're like, I need to remind myself of that more. Then the next three chapters are like, oh, that's a little bit. I got to get better at that. And I got to improve in this area. And we kind of, and then all of a sudden, this partial, partially into chapter six, he starts laying out these very heavy, dark and freaky, scary terms. He starts saying that we have a war that we are engaged in, that there is a battle to be won, that we have enemies all around us, that there are spiritual forces of wickedness everywhere. It's like, Paul, what's the deal with the downer here? We were just pursuing life improvement kinds of things. We were getting better at our communication. We were getting more satisfying marriages. We were raising our children with better principles. And then you come at us with all the freaky stuff. Little devils with uh, bifurcated tails and pitchforks. Where's all this coming from? 
The reality is that the struggles of our life, the adjustments that we need to make in life, and even, yes, some of our victories and successes are life, of life are actual engagements with the unseen world. Nothing is ever just mundane. Nothing is just a trip to the grocery store or the gas station. Nothing is ever just an encounter in the kitchen with your spouse. Nothing is ever just a conversation with your kids or correcting of making sure the homework gets done. None of these things are just mundane because they are done, performed, and, and lived beyond this physical world. A spiritual world around us is intertwined with the causes of our battles. It's impacted greatly by our actions in the day to day. So rather than only thinking of the coming bliss of the spiritual world or the nice little clouds and sort of as I had my near death experience, I was gone for five minutes in heaven and everything. There is a different reality that Paul wants us to see. And he wants to see it in a different light, at least for now, because at one point in the future, this will all come to an end. Paul wants us to see that the life that we live and the place that we live it is actually a battlefield. Listen to these terms. We'll go back to verse 12. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities or against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'm going to lay out what I think is helpful battle strategy. If Paul is calling us to live our lives on an acknowledgement or seeing the, li- the life that we live is actually a war on a battlefield, I'm going to just lay out a few simple steps to our advantage. And I'm just glad that nobody here... As I lay out battle strategy, I'm glad nobody here has ever served time in the military. I'm glad we don't have a general in our midst or anything like that to critique how lame and simplified my battle strategy is. But a few common elements come to my attention that I think we're finding in this text. The first I want to move move through really briefly because I don't see it heavily here in the scriptures, but I think it's a good um, note of intel as we move into the two that I think are more directly connected to the text that we're studying. And the first is that we need to study the conditions of the battlefield. This goes back to anything you've ever seen about preparing a strategy and rolling out the map or you've got the little, the fun little toy things. Do they, those have a name, uh, Corbett, do they have any kind of the little uh, chess pieces or something like that that they move over and they get to slide it over with the big stick, you know, as far as we're tear it, it's cool. Very cool. I should have chosen a different thing in life. But, uh, you know, so you're looking at the map, you're looking at the geographical region of which you're about to engage in battle. If you're not noticing topography, if you're not thinking about the climate changes, if you're not thinking about the physical conditions where you are about to wage war, then you are at a severe disadvantage. Wouldn't you agree? So how the physical world impacts our spiritual impact or growth needs to be considered. Again, my contention is, is that in the life of Christ followers is that we very rarely take inventory of the things that so easily trip us up, as Hebrews tells us. 
How the physical impacts the spiritual is something that we have to take great consideration of. Um, years ago, um, we used to see this a lot in writing about spiritual disciplines and stuff. And I think in particular, it had a foothold in um, men's ministries and stuff because these were some things that were particular to uh, helping men understand where the temptations of life were coming from. It was a helpful little acronym. It was called HALT. Like if you go to do something and you hesitate, you are halting, H-A-L-T. And it was uh, encouraging to us to stop and think about what are the circumstances of your life that are setting you up for failure that you're not thinking about and you have to stop and go, well, I'm probably about to make a bad decision because I haven't halted. Halting would be broken down as the H would be, are you hungry? Yep, as basic as that. You came to church to hear today that if you're starving yourself, you're going to be more on edge. Brilliant insight, right? But it's a reality. Are you hungry? I know that uh, Pastor Tom and I just went to a, um, a prayer retreat with other pastors in New England last week, and they asked us to come in on a on the end of a or halfway through a 24 hour fast. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I, I went from eating supper that night on a Sunday night. And only having to miss two meals on Monday, I thought I was going to die. It was terrible. And then these jokers, these my brothers in Christ in the free church, they take the last prayer session before we were all going to break our fast together and have dinner in the cafeteria of this retreat center that we went to. And they put the last prayer session, the last hour of prayer in the cafeteria. While the food's being prepared, I'm looking at my chef over there going, how cruel is that, right? The most beautiful heavenly sense you could ever imagine just wafting through the air. And you're like, Lord, and give us the strength to not kill the person who made us pray in this room at four o'clock in the afternoon. Hunger is a real thing, right? It's how we're designed and what we need. And it's so enjoyable. And so when we don't have that, we also morph into what we call hangriness, right? Are we angry? That's the A in halt. Also, are we isolated? Are we lonely? Are we vulnerable because we're not teamed up with somebody to watch our backs or to support us or to support somebody else? Or are we simply just tired? Are we exalted, exhausted? So Jesus faces, he steps into these physical struggles to accomplish spiritual results. Jesus, in coming in to serve his father's mission, unfolded the map and moved the pieces and said, these are the the challenges of the physical landscape in which I'm walking in. He fasted. He prayed to pass the point of exhaustion. His own disciples couldn't keep up with it. And he handled the responses of the world that rejected him and and beat on him and spit on him and mocked him and eventually crucified him. He faced all of those things because he took in the physical conditions and what he was accomplishing in the spiritual world went through the, the physical world for us. Spiritual forces of evil, though, they know the physical terrain very, very well. What Paul is bringing to our attention of all the the movements of the enemy, they've been studying the map for a lot longer than you and I have. They have a lot of intel that you and I don't have. We, We have the eyeballs in our head that get us into trouble. We have the ears on the side of our head that take in more than than we should. We have mouths that spew out things that we sometimes should wish that we could get back. 
and the spiritual forces of evil know that when they unfold the map, they know these are all the physical things that trip up God's people too. That they have the same eyes as everybody else. They have the same ears. They have the same mouth and therefore can fall into the same snares. So they ponder, how do we use this to our advantage? So again, as we study the conditions of the battlefield, we have to take in the physical conditions but also the cultural conditions. And we won't spend much time on this, but I think this is illustrated for us with our recent engagements in the Middle East where we had to uh, engage in an enemy that was living and moving amongst civilians, people of that region. And for our soldiers to not even know where do they stand on, are they for us, are they against us, are we blowing up their homes or are we trying to work around them? All these kinds of considerations that our forces needed to think about. What are the beliefs of the people in which we're operating in? What are their fears? What are their needs? What are their desires? How does their history inform what we're stepping into? All of those considerations needed to be made from a cultural perspective. It's the same thing for us, especially as we talk about advancing, if you will, or moving into the uh, spiritual climate of the outreach that God is calling us to in our city. What are the conditions, culturally speaking, that are going on in the lives of the people around us? To not stop and take inventory puts us at a severe disadvantage. Authorities and rulers of darkness are seeking to shape culture towards a collective resistance of truth and light. So the first and and perhaps the quickest part of all this is to study the conditions of the battlefield to, to measure the map, to understand what we're getting into. Secondly, it's important for us to anticipate the actions of the enemy. Now, we have so much spelled out for us as to who Satan really is. And yes, he is a real person. His nature has been put on display for us and we need to know what his nature is in order for us to anticipate what his actions are going to be. Where is his attack going to come from? And the first thing I think we need to think about when it comes to the nature of Satan is just acknowledge that he is powerful. Think of the terms that Paul's using here. He's saying rulers, authorities, He says cosmic powers. These are all the forces that move in support of his leadership. They all answer to him. It takes one of tremendous power to orchestrate that and to advance all of that to the degree of success that he's had for all of these millennia. You don't even need to look any further than what he was allowed to do to Job when God said, okay, I'll let you inflict Job a little bit. I'll let you put your hand on uh, his circumstances in his life. You just can't knock him out, but you can do anything else you want to. And what is Satan capable of doing? In moments, he can just devastate somebody's entire life as one example. I don't know if you've ever been caught off guard by some show of force. I think that sometimes I, that realization happens if I'm ever near the ocean or on the ocean and, and you're kind of like, oh, this is a nice day and you're kind of feeling the waves and it's fun. All it takes is for one little thing to start going wrong and all of a sudden the immense force in which you're engaging in starts to show itself up like, okay, I'm, I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. You have no uh, recourse against anything that I want to do to you. 
We've encountered this with weather systems, and you think about not only when we get a storm report that uh, that that kind of minimizes something and it comes in much stronger, or there's a lot of cleanup or to, uh, fallout to deal with, but you think about the folks that live in the middle of the country and have tornado alleys and all these other things. That there's an appreciation for, I know I can see something at a distance and I'm not sure what it's really going to do. But once it's front and center and it's right there in my face, I start to have a tremendous respect for its force and for its power. Underestimating the strength or the power of Satan will render the Christian weak in battle. It'll be like that first punch that throws you off guard and you say, I had no idea he could bring this to the fight. That's why we don't see biblical language for you and me going and casting out Satan. And you say, well, no, there's plenty of stuff in the Bible about casting out demons and all that kind of, yeah, but we're not told, go toe to toe with him. You'll win, go ahead. That's not what the language of the scripture says. James sharpens it for us in chapter four. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. You have a shield, go hide behind him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The language of the Ephesians six passage that we're studying together is stand still, stand strong, lean into it, but you don't go out trying to pick a fight. You don't think you can go toe to toe with him thinking that the outcome will be favorable to you. No, the devil, the devil is not all powerful. That's the omnipotence that's assigned to the Lord himself, but he's more powerful than you and I in and of ourselves. So he's powerful. He's wicked. Paul says that he's evil, which means there is no restrictions. There's no strategies off limits. He doesn't have that little check in that we have about, I don't know if I want to push it that far. There are very few, if anybody, that we know that has no check whatsoever at the lengths that they will go to punish, torture, or brutalize somebody else. We hear the stories, perhaps we've seen the documentaries, but there are few people that don't have any kind of a check that's like, "Eh, I don't even know if I could be this bad. Satan has none of that. No, He's the epitome of the worst of the worst. He has everything at his disposal. He is just flat out evil. But scriptures also spend time talking to us about how cunning he is. Paul uses the word schemes. Other translations say wiles. You picture the coyote who's always looking for a way to trap the roadrunner. He's always looking for a method to hang him up. Craftiness, a design to catch and to trip up. All of this packaged in what the scripture calls the chief of the angels or the anointed cherub picture, a little cherub, little adorable, little baby with the wings. I don't know what they really look like, but our image of a cherub is nothing intimidating or threatening. Scripture even calls him the star of the morning. Imagine the, the, the complexity of one whose outward appearance and sophistication is attractive And draws us in only to be guilty of and capable of and actually the epitome of the most ruthless evil any of us would ever know. So Paul told us in 2 Corinthians that we shouldn't be outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his designs. We need a heads up. We need to see him coming as he is. Later on in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So underestimating the beauty of Satan renders the Christian dazed in battle. That's a look very briefly at the nature of our enemy as we study him. Let me talk a little bit more as we move on about some of the tactics that he engages in. Now I'm going to list out a few things here. and They're all going to conveniently start with the letter D, so enjoy this. But we'd see if we went back and looked specifically at the interaction with the devil and Adam and Eve in the garden and all of his um, success at steering them away from the provisions and the promise of God and, and then leading these two perfect people created in perfection to trade all of that in for some momentary high, you're going to see all of these little D words playing out as you go back and study that interaction. Satan is a master of distraction. I've said for a long time that he doesn't care if you worship him or not. I grew up in the 80s and I was a Christian in the 80s and in church in the 80s. Everything was about all the movements of Satanism and all the freaky stuff of backward masking. Anybody remember backward masking fears and stuff like that? So if you want to, you know, you listen to Stairway to Heaven and it has some messages in there about Satan and everything. And we were all dazzled and sort of like, ooh, it's so freaky. And, and, it, and it's okay to point some of those things out. But again, that's part of the distraction at the same time. I'm a little bit of a broken record on this because I'm bitter. But at the same time that we are all railing against Ozzy Osbourne's The Prince of Darkness, which he kind of thinks he is, so don't think I'm trying to promote Ozzy Osbourne. But I remember in the 80s, he was the, the epitome of evil. He was doing all kinds of grotesque things at concerts and the music he was writing and all this kind of stuff. At the same time that we were all fixated on the evil of Ozzy Osbourne and other people that wore the heavy makeup and had the pentagrams in their music, Whitney Houston was coming out with the biggest hit one of any of us have ever heard, which is the greatest love of all is to love who? Yourself and no one else. Satan's like, I'm going to use that message to wreak havoc on a culture while everyone's worried about pentagrams and candles and the missing cats, which I think they're onto something, by the way, with the missing cats. But I digress. Sorry, cat lovers. Satan very commonly uses the tactic of distraction, both at that macro level all across culture, but also in our lives. I mean, I feel like this week has been nothing but a distraction for me as I've thought about this. I've been nervous about coming into this text because it spells out so much of the whole point of the letter of Ephesians. And I'm like, Lord, I just want to treat the text well and make sure your people grasp it. And all week long, I've been staring into a fog, it seems like. What are you trying to say here, Lord? What's what's this text really mean? And what, what is it? I'm talking about battle. I've never been in battle before and all these kinds of things. And so how is this all coming together? And then all kinds of distractions happen throughout the week. Stupid slip on the ice. And because I'm a geezer, my bones don't bounce back and they just crack. So that's what happened. Pastor Tom said I should say that publicly or else I'll have 80 questions. What happened to your hand? And that was towards the end of the week, but all sorts of things throughout the week, just distraction after distraction after distraction. Now, I'm not saying that Satan's in my ear going, think about other things. I, I got my own self to worry about that gets in the way. We have these enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. But he's the master of distraction. 
He's the master of discouragement, I think, if we ask for testimonies in the world, uh, in, in the room. How has the, how has the devil led you into discouragement? In much the same way he did Adam and Eve. You know, God doesn't really care about your enlightenment. If he cared, he'd let you eat of that fruit. And then they start being discouraged about maybe God doesn't love me as much as he claims to have. Or we become discontent, which is the plague of our generation right now, because everything that I can put on display for you looks like peace, joy, happiness, fulfillment. I can put it on my story, or I could do any of those kinds of things so that you get an image of what I want you to see. And what it's causing is a cultural discontentment with, how come my life isn't that great? In places where we should be building unity, he builds divide. When we should be trusting in the goodness of God and his love for us, he creeps in with doubt. He deceives. There isn't anything in him that is truthful. Everything that he says, even if it happens to contain truth, which all good lies do, is all for the purpose of deceiving you, of steering you astray. Hey, that relationship, that's really the one you've been waiting for. You know, this other one over here just doesn't understand you, doesn't get you. So so why don't you give in just a little bit? And I'm sure it's going to work out fine. You know that you're doing this for the family. That's why you're working all those hours. That's why you're so distracted with all those kinds of things. It's for the good of your family. So just keep grinding, keep going. All of these kinds of seeds of, of, of deception that are sown into our thinking. All for the purpose of destroying us. This is what Jesus says. He says, the thief who is Satan comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. There's no half measure with Satan. Once we partner up with him or we give in, it's not that he's got just a somewhat of an interest in seeing you stumble. He just wants you in a grave. That's all he cares about. The end of you. Because you are one that brings glory to his arch enemy. You are one that brings purpose in and appointing to the goodness of God. So as many of us as he can eliminate, the better for him. So underestimating the cruelty of Satan renders the Christian lifeless in battle. I just want to add that one of his tactics also is that he is extremely personal. Not, not he himself, and I know we say this as an expression, oh, Satan did this to me or anything. He's not actively in our ear. He's got other fish to fry. But all of his rulers, his principalities, all the things that march at his command, the incredible organization that happens in the spiritual world is all here to attack you personally. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So the implication is that we do wrestle with these other things. And Paul specifically uses the word wrestle to help us to understand a much closer form of combat. Instead of the war that we picture in our modern era where everything's fired from away, where there's a little bit more distance, or I see similar, like, faceless people in the same uniform and stuff, picture, if you will, more like those old war movies that show that once that, that line is breached and the enemy is diving into foxholes and there's bayonets, and now it's like, I see the face, I see the wounds, I hear the voice, and only one of us is making out of this struggle. This is what Paul wants us to understand, that we we wrestle personally against these forces. So don't expect him to just dazzle you with uh, things that are off in the distance, or wouldn't it be nice if, no, his most 
his most effective form of attack is hitting you in the place where it hurts the most. Why are we saying all this to be discouraging? No, to anticipate it, to study the movements of our enemy without being fixated on all the false distractions and things. But to think about this is how he really moves. This is where his greatest success has been. So that lastly, we can operate within the resources of our inventory. Let's go back to verses 10 and 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Be strong in what? Just to be strong? No, to be strong in the strength of Jesus. And, and actually this word be strong, because this is again, this is something that will show up on a mug or a, a poster, a motivational poster is a, a feeling of you and I just like kind of getting into it more, feeling it more. I got to do this Jesus thing better this week. And so we try to drum up some emotion and say, okay, I'm going to be strong. The Lord can count on me. If I show up, this is a little bit more of a passive thing that he's saying. In other words, he could, he could have worded it, be strengthened, which is something that you receive from the outside. Be strengthened in the Lord. We regularly make two mistakes. We're often on two ends of the spectrum. On one hand, we can be too self-confident, which is, I got this. Jesus can count on me. This guy's no challenge for me. I can face my enemy head on. I can face my quote unquote demons. I can beat this temptation. I don't even need to reach out to any of my brothers or my sisters in Christ. I don't even need to let anybody know what my struggle is or any of those sorts of things. Cause I got this. Jesus is going to be happy that I'm in his army. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is more what I'm seeing as the generations go on, which is an insecurity of God wouldn't pick me for the battlefield. I am no soldier. He, he couldn't really use me. He's got other people that he could use more. They're more equipped for this. They're better trained for this. They know more scripture than I do or any of those kinds of things. They can lead groups better than I can. Any of those kinds of statements that we make that we have given into an insecurity. Why? Because we're looking at us. If I study myself more than who Jesus is, I'll come to all kinds of wacky conclusions because I know me. Instead, Jesus faced the temptation in the physical world from Satan, his enemy, to prove a few things to us. If you're not familiar with the story, Luke 4 captures it beautifully. We don't have time to go into it, but it would be something that you'd want to study at a later time. Basically, suffice it to say that Jesus has gone out into the wilderness, the, specific, the, the scripture says specifically, to be tempted by the devil. So this is set up. This is like, okay, I'm going to go and face these temptations. And he goes for 40 days without bread. So already I'm saying, okay, Brent can't go 24 hours. Jesus can go 40 days. It's pretty impressive. He goes 40 days with no food. So of course he's got the halt thing going on. He's hungry. He's angry. He's, well, you know, who knows? He's lonely, he's tired, he might be going through, why? Because he's felt all of those same things, those same emotions in, a, in the same body that we've been born in. So Satan comes along and says, hey, you know, what? I got an easy solution for you. You're the you're son of God and everything. Turn these stones into bread. 
Now, maybe Jesus in his humanity wasn't even thinking about bread and someone just has to mention, like I'm going to do to you, do to you now. You know, um, uh, the Texas Roadhouse, that cinnamon butter they put on the rolls, isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that brilliant? It's not lunchtime yet. You have to wait longer. You see how cruel that is? This is what Satan comes up and says, hey, just make it bread and you're great at this. This is going to be the best bread anybody's ever eaten. And Jesus just says to him, men shall not live by bread alone. So Satan says, um, how about if I give you, he shows him the landscape and says, I will give you because it had been handed to him in his jurisdiction. So he says, I can hand this over to whoever I will. So how about I give you the kingdoms of the world if you fall down and worship me? And so maybe Jesus is thinking, well, everyone's been kind of rejecting me. This has been a hard go. So maybe if I was given the kingdoms of the world, I'm saying all this sarcastically to make a point here in a second. So Jesus responds again with the word and says, uh, no, you don't worship anyone but the Lord your God. So I will never worship you because you are not the Lord God. So he takes him to the peak of the temple and he says, okay, let's, let's demonstrate your power because the scripture says that you can just give your angels charge. Why don't you jump off the roof? They'll surely come and protect you and save you. There will be no splatter on the ground to worry about. Jesus says, okay, enough. Scripture says, don't test the Lord your God. Now, I'm being honest with you here. I've always thought that these temptations, other than probably the hunger part, but for Jesus, they all seem really lame. They all seem really weak because we know how it goes. We know the end of the story. We know that Jesus has dominion and power over everything that he's created. So what's offering him a few kingdoms on this world that will pass away? What does that really do? Yeah, he could have had bread for the moment and everything, but all of these things just seem like, and he did have angels come and protect him in other ways. And so they all seem like really lame attempts to Jesus, but that's because of who he is. Now put yourself in that position. Go that 24, 48, 72 hours without eating. And then somebody comes by and says, I don't know if you realize this, but you could turn those stones into bread. I just have a, a, a catch for you. Or we're feeling lonely or isolated or rejected. And somebody comes along and says, I could give you all the power and the influence and the satisfaction of earthly kingdoms because I have that kind of power. Or well, you want to see something really cool? Why don't you go and do something and we'll see the, the, the powers of heaven come and whisk you away and, and protect you. There's a part of that because I'm a fragile human being who does not have um, um, all, all the faith that the Lord has supplied to me to be able to believe that he has something better for me. There's a part of that was awfully tempting. If I thought that any of those things could actually happen, I might engage in them. I mean, I certainly do for lesser reasons. For lesser payoffs, these temptations seem silly when thrown at Jesus, but when if they were thrown at us, and they are on a daily basis, they would be catastrophic. Instead, God had a plan. He tells us about it in Colossians 2. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in Him, in Jesus. I like the fact that these temptations seem really lame to Jesus. And I understand why they seem monumental to me. 
So when Paul says be in Jesus, it means I am not in Brent because in Brent, I fall in Brent. All of those uh, temptations look interesting, compelling, satisfying to me. But in Jesus, they're nothing. They pale in comparison to everything that he is and everything that he owns. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. In other words, we don't fight for victory. He's not counting on us to win the war. We fight from victory because he's already done it. That's his strength on display. And we won't get into the specifics today, but to set up our time going forward, the second aspect of taking an inventory of our resources is to, is to see his armor. And Paul started off this section in verse 10. He says, finally, he wasn't just introducing like this is a wrap up to the letter or finally I'm coming to a conclusion. That word has also been looked at as something that could say like henceforth or going forward. So everything that he's going to say is going forward, step into the armor. Going forward, don't uh, try to defeat the enemy on your own. Going forward, recognize the war that you're really in. So what is he telling us? He says, put on the whole armor of God. This package, uh, this image here is us sliding into this armor, all of it. Somebody who is dependent on the Lord, somebody who's been out there and felt the effects of the war and engaged in the battle and says, I just don't think I can beat my enemy. I don't think I can survive this. Then says when somebody says, but you have armor, we respond with give me every piece of it. I don't want any weakness. I don't want any openings. I don't want anything that could be penetrated by ammunition. So give it all to me. And this is what Paul is saying. Put on the whole armor of God. But there's also a permanence. In his language, again, Christian life is if I'm feeling dialed into Jesus, I'm praying hard. I'm going to wear the armor this week, but next week I'm going to have a bad week. And so I guess I didn't put the armor on. You see how we can get into that kind of mind game and we can think that it's an optional kind of thing. But Paul's saying it's a permanence step into slide into the armor of God and stay there. These are resources that have been given to every child in Christ. Every soldier in the battle has been given permanent armor. So it's an acknowledgement. It's a recognizing. It's a continuation of the praise in which he started this letter saying, do you understand what you're walking around in? You think sometimes it's uncomfortable and it's clanky and all this kind of stuff, but it's protecting you from this enemy who has been defeated by me. So those are the individual pieces that we'll look at in praise and celebration in the week's Coming ahead. We've been talking this morning about the unseen world. I don't know if you've heard the, the stories before, but there's been many stories about missionaries coming back from foreign fields saying that we were under attack or almost under siege. And then the people turned away and ran away. And then they later admitted we are going to attack you, but you looked like you had hired more security. And what's the deal with their swords on fire and all these things. And hear these kind of stories about angelic presences pre- protecting these missionaries. We heard about the story with Elisha and his, and his apprentice, Lord, open his eyes that he can see things that he doesn't see. But victory in the seen realm is won through battle in the unseen realm. These moments that we consider mundane, these moments that we consider ours or just belong to ourselves, God's not looking, he doesn't really care. All of those are opportunities to continue to uh, be faithful in battle in a world that we don't often see. 
but it's not up to us. Jesus is our victorious soldier who won the battle over spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. He conquered them all. We sang about it earlier that the demons run and flee just at his name. We live a spiritual life in a physical world. Engaging in the battle is the call for all who follow Christ. So I implore you, know the battlefield, study its landscape, know your enemy and be aware of his tactics and know your resources that are yours in Christ, able to protect you and cause you to be able to stand. Speaking of which, would you do so while we pray? Lord God, the privilege is ours to be enlisted in the fight. And Lord, we have a hard time separating what's our responsibility and your strength. And so, Lord, part of that journey is a growth in humility. For us to not have all the answers, to not have it all figured out, but to be utterly dependent on our great God and Savior, the one who is capable and who has conquered our enemy. So, Lord, for reasons we don't understand, there will be many days that we'll continue to live in this existence of battles and skirmishes and hand-to-hand combats and wounds. And, Lord, I don't know all the purposes that you have for that, but, Lord, I trust you. And I know every time that we've walked in your armor that you've protected us and you continue to protect us. So, Lord, while we sometimes wrestle with needing a purpose, needing an explanation, would you instead distract us or keep us preoccupied with just our, our faithfulness to you? To surrender to the call and to be faithful on the field. Lord, to engage in this battle, not just for our own souls, but for those that need to come to you. The souls of those who are being dismantled and discarded by the enemy. So, Lord, in so many different ways, our town, our families are being attacked and ravished, Lord, by the wolf. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, that you would help us to stand firm and to shine a light, point all men and women and children to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.